Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name is Doug Cunnington, and today we have a pretty fun interview with Elaine. So Elaine is an advisor over at Quiet Light, where she helps entrepreneurs sell online-based businesses. She has a background in e-commerce, which is what we're going to talk about today, and started her first profitable e-com business on Etsy in 2009. I didn't even know it existed back then. <laughs> and you've built a lot of businesses since then, including a content site, an online subscription service, and an a fitness e-commerce brand that you exited through Quiet Light before joining the team as the uh, one of the advisors there. There's quite a few. So I want to start in the middle of your story and then jump around a little bit. So let's go and talk about the big exit and tell me when you started that brand, how you grew the company, and when you sold it. So v- very big question, and I'll just kind of turn over the floor and let you tell the story a little bit here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Doug. So um, the brand we're talking about is my e-commerce business called Uplift Active. And it's an aerial yoga fitness arts brand that I started in 2016. So I started it as more of a hobbyist myself at the time um, and saw a niche that there was not um, any company online that was really specializing in this type of equipment and how to use it at home, how to set it up, safety things people should be aware of. So I saw an opportunity and decided this is going to be my next kind of e-commerce endeavor. So I started that, started off slow, but slowly kind of ramped it up year over year, gained traction through paid ads, trying different things. And, and it was kind of a slow, steady growth over about five years. And then I, after about five years, I found myself in COVID, which absolutely exploded sales and was amazing for our business, but at the same time was also extremely overwhelming. I found myself really burnt out and wanting to do something else, but also feeling a little bit trapped in my business. And that's why I decided to sell it and I came across Quiet Light. Okay. Wow, that's pretty crazy. Yeah, you hear a lot of businesses that really exploded over COVID because people were at home and maybe they weren't taking vacations or spending money going out to eat or movies or whatever. So they were investing in in things that they could do at home. So is that kind of what happened with with your business? Yeah. I mean, think about it. All the gyms were closed at the time. I don't know if you remember, it was like you could resell your gym equipment for stupid amounts of money on like Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist. Everyone was sold out. Everyone's, you know, doing their home fitness thing. And so aerial yoga was a more creative thing people could do. Kids love it. Um, Just like a really great kind of like at home activity that you can stay fit and also have fun at the same time. So just demand exploded. We had good inventory at the time. So we were like really well prepared going into it to meet that demand. And it got just a little more challenging as, you know, just getting products overseas during that time was really, really tough and got more and more expensive. It was a a whole host of things that, that was just, it was, a wild time. It was, it was really a whirlwind. Um, I feel like super lucky that, you know, it's like, it was a, you know, really difficult time for our whole society at large, but you know, the silver lining is that at least our business was able to really gain some traction as a result of it. Okay. So you started the company in 2016 and we will go back cause I am curious about some of the early businesses that you started, but in 2016, did you know what you were doing or getting into, or it was just like one of the opportunities that showed up and you were like, Hey, I'll give it a try. It sounds like maybe you were into aerial yoga. Yeah. I didn't know what I was doing 
so much from an e-commerce perspective, a little bit. Like I had started this Etsy store many years previously. So I knew kind of like the process of like how to, how to source products from China, how to import them, what at a very basic level, I had that understanding, but I didn't know how to run paid ads. I've never used like Shopify before, or, you know, gone through that process. So I was new to that. And I followed several influencers at the time on the drop shipping space to get started. So I actually started by drop shipping existing products from China initially, which is not really like a viable business model today, but at the time it was. So I'd started selling other people's products before starting to import and then private label and designing our own products. As a result, that kind of happened organically over time as the business grew and I got more feedback from customers. Okay, perfect. And it sounds like you you tackled each new challenge as you went and you weren't thinking, hey, I need to know everything all at once. Because I, I see some people kind of making a mistake where they try to plan everything out like two years ahead and things are going to change. Yeah. It's not going to turn out like they think. So you just kind of stair-stepped up as you went, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that's a common misconception. Like I've had friends that want to get into e-commerce or running an online business. And sometimes I see people get stuck in the trap of researching everything and feeling like they just don't know enough to get started. Whereas the best way to learn is just by doing it. You're going to, you're going to make mistakes. You have to know that even, even once you even have a, you know, established successful business, you're still going to make mistakes, but that's the only way you're going to learn and grow is by trying different things and just doing it. So now let's go back to 2009 and Etsy, what's the story with some of the early projects you worked on specifically that one? Yeah, I was a teenager. <laughs> this is my first <laughs> online business. And I wanted to do this business for like two years before I actually was able to because my mom wouldn't let me make an Etsy account <laughs> and like hook up the bank information to get paid. She's like, Oh, I don't trust this. It was in like, I don't know if it was like Teen Vogue or Girls Life. It was in like a teen magazine that I learned about Etsy. And I have always been a really like craftsy, artsy person. And I was like, I, this would be my dream to like make crafts and art and sell it on Etsy as, as like a child. This is like, I was, I love this idea. So I finally convinced my mom and I, that business was masquerade masks. So I imported like masks from China and then I'd paint them, decorate them, design them and sell them on Etsy. Okay. And I take it then you didn't know what you were doing then either. You saw the magazine article. (laughs) All right. How did you, how did you figure out how to import from China? Yeah, honestly, I don't really remember. It was really probably, I just, I probably just Googled. I was just a kid looking at, looking up stuff on the internet. How do I get um, product in bulk and probably was like, Oh, how do I buy things in bulk? And probably Alibaba was one of the first search results. And that's, that's how I started. Okay. That's pretty cool. So, so you were a teenager, then you had this exit, you started the other, uh, the e-commerce brand uplift active is what you said, right. In 2016. Mm -hmm. So did you go to, uh, college? Did you have a corporate gig? Can you talk about that? So we'll go on a detour here. What's the story? Yeah. So that mass business I started in high school. And then when I went to college, we ended up selling it to a family friend. Not Nothing notable, but really just, hey, I don't want to do this anymore in school. I don't have the time. Family friend took it over. And I studied entrepreneurship in college. So that was 
what I wanted to do. I knew that I loved working for myself. I loved having, you know, creative freedom, freedom of my time. But I also was like, I was a kid, I didn't really have any expertise. I didn't have, you know, any like, you know, industry expertise to be able to build a business from. So I graduated college, I worked for a startup briefly that ended up folding and found myself in a corporate gig working as a data analyst. So I worked as like a a spreadsheet junkie for like three or four years out of college. And I, it it was not for me. I did not like the nine to five kind of job. I did not like working in an office, but uh, it was enough that kind of put a fire under my butt that it was like, I need to do something for myself. I need to figure something out. And so that got me kind of dabbling in the online business world. I worked on a couple of content sites before I found Uplift Active. Did you know right away at the corporate job that it wasn't for you? And I'll buy you a little time here. So for me, I I have an engineering degree and I got a corporate job. And the thing is, when you get there, they sort of, they send you to orientation, they indoctrinate you with like the, with Kool-Aid <laughs> and they're <laughs> like, all right, like in a couple years you might get promoted and then five more years after that. And then like, see these people, they're so successful and you feel important and you're like, this is the way to do it. And I was like, okay, but I, I wasn't really into it, but I like played along for a little while. So how was it for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I also knew pretty early on that it wasn't for me, but I also felt like I didn't really have another path. It was like, okay, I'm, I'm making an income. I can support myself. I don't really have another means. So I was a little bit trapped in that. It was like, I have to make the most of this because this is my best path towards, you know, just being able to support myself and have, have a decent life. So yeah, it wasn't ideal, you know, starting out, but I made the most of it. I was, I've always been like a little bit of a try hard. So I'm like, I'm a little bit like, I'm going to, I'm going to do the best that I can at this job and, and like be the best person in this role that I can be. But on the flip side of that, you know, in a corporate world, you're not really like rewarded, you know, you're not necessarily compensated directly related to your work. So sometimes it's like, I have a little bit of resentment that I feel like I'm putting in more than my colleagues. We're all making the same amount of money, but I'm also like, I have this like kind of drive inside of me that like, I just can't be like a slacker. And I don't want to like, I I feel like I have to do my best, you know, even though it's not necessarily like coming back to me in a financial or uh, other benefits really. So that kind of harbored some resentment in me that also kind of fueled, you know, my side projects that I hoped would be able to get me free eventually. That's funny. I had the same observation, but instead of working hard, I I was the person you resented because I was like, you know what? <laughs> if I'm not going to get a raise or a promotion anyway, I'm doing like bare minimum here. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's why so many people didn't want to work with me. That wasn't that bad. But, <laughs> but yeah, I was just like, it doesn't, I mean, I could put in like a hundred percent more effort and then get like a tiny raise or like work on my own stuff. And that pays off way more. So when did you leave the corporate job? Yeah. Um, I left it in 2018. That was a really difficult transition, actually. I don't think enough people really talk about that, but it was like a huge mental shift to fully commit to my e-commerce business and just shed my data analyst career that I felt like I'd put, you know, so much time and effort and, you know, some years of work at that point into. It was like a really big mental shift and I had a hard time committing for maybe like the first six months. I was like, oh, I could always 
you know, maybe do some like data analyst work on the side or like, you know, some consulting on the side. It's like, I really like had a little bit of like mental difficulty making that shift, but I did get there eventually. And, uh, never looked back since. Yeah. Yeah. Could you imagine having a job now? That's crazy. No. (laughs) So did you have any of your identity tied up with the corporate job? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Did you experience that too? Or you, did you feel like your identity was part of your career there? I, a a little bit, but by the time, so I got lucky, I got laid off, so I didn't have to make an active decision. But once I got laid off, I had the opportunities in front of me. So I had a couple things going on the side already, but it it made a huge difference. Cause it, like I said, I, I probably wouldn't have quit on my own, but if they laid me off, then now like the universe is like opened up and I'm like, I have a chance now, but I, Probably for about three or four years, I was slowly, I had a bad attitude if you didn't catch it earlier, right? So for about three or four years, I was slowly like not playing along as much. And I started to listen to like entrepreneurship podcasts and Tim Ferriss and stuff like that. So I was kind of checked out by the time they laid, I mean, I got laid off because I was doing like very autonomous, like entrepreneurship type things in my role because I had a lot of freedom and that didn't work that well. So basically I wouldn't like ask for approval for certain things. I would just say, oh, this looks like a cool idea. I'm just going to implement this on my team and see what happens. And, you know, management doesn't like that very much. So I had a very slow transition that made it much easier. So I didn't have like an identity crisis, basically. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was, yeah, it was difficult. Like I said, it was like a weird, just a weird transition. In some ways it's like a blessing to be laid off. It's like you're have a forced reset. Whereas it's different when I'm like leaving my job and everyone's like, what are you doing? Lane? I didn't even tell my colleagues that I was, that I was leaving, that I even had this business. Like it was totally secret the whole time. Nobody knew. Um, <laughs> I, I just told them I wanted to take a break to go travel, which was true. Cause I wanted to travel and run my business remotely, but like they all just thought I was, I was crazy to throw away, you know, this career and this job. And, you know, when you're with these people 40 hours a week, like you're very much inundated in that culture. So it's definitely like, well, a big lifestyle change. And then, well, like you said, I mean, not everyone has a lot of friends at work, but they're the people that you spend the most time with. And then like, you cut those ties basically. And like, you think, Hey, I'm going to hang out with them. But if they're not in your normal environment, then you're probably not going to hang out with them again. So I don't know. Do you have any comments on that? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Like I have not really kept up with any of my, my coworkers, not, not in any serious way since then. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing, whole thing we could talk about is like being an entrepreneur can be also isolating at times because you don't have those coworkers, especially working remotely, but Luckily, there's been a lot of great communities that you can meet people online and, and, and make those connections just in a little bit different way. Well, actually, yeah, let's go there. We're, we're going di- to divert from the notes that I had. But yeah, so working alone is completely different. And you went from the corporate job and you were working on the side. You're probably working a lot of hours like total if you were working full time and then running the business and it was big enough for yeah. you to leave your your gig. So what was the transition like? when all of a sudden you were just working on your business? Yeah, I mean, 
It was a little bit difficult, honestly, to stay motivated at first because I felt like, oh my gosh, I have so much time. And I was like, I was hoping going into it, oh, I'm going to be able to, you know, you know, look how big my business possibly could be if I'm working on my business now 60 hours a week instead of, you know, 40 hours of corporate, 20 hours business kind of situation. But like, I did not, I did not do that. I definitely took a break. We went on a bunch of trips that summer after we quit, my, my boyfriend and I, boyfriend at the time, and I quit at the same time because we both had e-commerce businesses and they're both at a level that we could quit. We were kind of doing it in tandem. So yeah, it, like I said, it took me about six months to be like normalized and like figure out like my, my routine and my workflow and cadence wasn't an immediate shift. And then how is it working alone? I, I take it you had a team, but not in the same location, but yeah, what what is yeah. it like working alone? Is it lonely? Sometimes. Um, I think it's, it's just a little bit different. You know, you have to really be self-motivated. It's just, I guess you know, pre quitting, I was like really confined to like, I have to work on my business during these hours and these things have to be done and I have to do it. Whereas post quitting, I had a lot more time. So it was kind of like managing that. And it was definitely very isolating at first because I didn't, I wasn't really plugged into a lot of like groups or communities at that time. I, I really kind of discovered that a little bit later as we started traveling, actually. So we quit our jobs in 2018 and then started traveling over that summer. And then 2019, we traveled the entire year and went to like 17 different countries. And everywhere we'd go, we try and find events and conferences to go to. So we'd make business trips out of it. So we'd go to different, you know, entrepreneur events and we met so many people. And that was hugely transformative for my business because I learned different ad techniques, you know, so 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 much from the people we met and it was it was it was amazing just realizing oh my gosh we, like we're not alone in this there are so many people doing the same thing we made some amazing friends that we still keep up to um and that, that that'd be like my best advice for anyone is just you know if we had gotten plugged into these communities earlier i think we we would have grown sooner even than we did great advice yeah around here i live in colorado and there's like a financial independence community, like in this town that I'm in. And it's great because people have, you know, a lot of free time generally. So you can like go out for a hike in the middle of the day, in the middle of the week and like kind of miss the the crowds. And it, again, people just yeah. have a lot of free time and flexible schedules. So I'll see people at the gym in the middle of the day. And usually it's like, it's crowded then. It's kind of a nice thing to do. But the other thing is like just... um like around the holidays, there's like parties and stuff like that. So again, community is huge and it's great timing that you were able to get the travel, a lot of the travel out of the way before COVID, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like, was just, that was just pure luck yeah. with the timing. All right. So let's talk about when you decided to sell it sounds like it can't, it sort of snuck up on you a little bit, but can you talk about making yeah. that decision and any struggles with like actually making the decision and then following through with it? Yeah. I mean, when I started this business, I wasn't thinking about selling it. It was really like, what if I could, my dream was to be able to like have a business to support myself so I could quit my job. That was the dream going into it. I didn't even know that like selling businesses was a thing when I started this in 2016. But I learned about them at a conference that I went to over in 2019. One of them, Quiet Lights competitors was there. And I was like, oh, this is this is interesting. I had no idea that I could sell my business. And I think at the time it was it was worth, you know, a few hundred thousand. I was like, oh, that's cool. Like, I don't want to sell for that, but 
it's cool to know that that's an option for me. So after that point, I was always in the back of my mind. I'm like, okay, hey, if we get this to a point where we can sell it and it makes sense and I can have some financial freedom, like that's great. It's kind of like I have an exit idea in the back of my mind from that point forward. And then when COVID came and our sales just exploded, the workload just exploded. And I had a really hard time keeping a good team in place. Like I hired 16 people over the course of a year for really only like four positions that, that we actually needed. It was just constant. I couldn't keep people. I I was never like a manager before. So I was really like learning as I'm doing. I'm like, okay, I need to be more buttoned up. I need to be more careful in like the initial like screening process and, you know, hiring slow. There's a lot of lessons that I learned over that year, but it was also super exhausting and super time consuming for me to hire and train all these people that like most of them were not working out, um, at least in the beginning. But I finally got it to a point where I had like a really, really good team. We had just the best best group of people working with us. Um, but I still was like, I just can't. Like I was, I was exhausted. It had been so much work to get to that point. And I knew that I wanted to kind of revisit selling again. So I reached out to Quiet Light. I don't remember how I initially found out about Quiet Light. I think it might have been their podcast. But I reached out to them. I talked to one of the advisors and he gave me a valuation estimate, which sounded great. I was like, yeah, I, like let's let's sell. Let's let's I, I would love to be free. But he told me that it would be a little bit difficult to sell because um there were some risks with my involvement. Like I was pretty heavily involved. I was still working a lot. Like I just put together this really great team, but I was still working, you know, 50 hours a week in the business. And also we were shipping some things out of our house. Like we were managing returns. We're, we needed to outsource everything to a 3PL to make that the easier transition. And trying to think there was maybe one other thing, um, just buttoning up our processes, making sure that it was going to be really easy for a buyer to take over. And he said he really recommended that I do those things before listing for sale because we would have a better response. So I, as much as I wanted to sell, I like took his advice and I did those things. I got the 3PL set in up. I um, got a lot of my work outsourced to my, my assistant who became our operations manager and really got our processes buttoned up over the course of six months before going and revisiting quiet light and listing it for sale. Okay. And the 3PL that they, they handle like fulfillment and everything. Is that right? Yeah. So we got a warehouse in California that would handle um, fulfillment of all of our sales returns so that nothing was coming through our house. Okay. And then I, I mean, you were doing that to prepare to sell it, but basically mm -hmm. that took, you and most of your involvement out of the business, right? So then you were just like overseeing stuff, the operations manager like did everything. And it's just like, you're there for emergencies and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm still like involved. I was still involved in the business to a certain degree. Like I'm, I'm managing, you know, inventory orders, but the day to day, my assistants were handling and that made it a lot easier to sell because they have my expertise and knowledge. It's like they, they're trained. They know everything that I know about any issues that come up, about any product questions that made it a lot easier for that transition. I was really needed very minimally after closing. Very cool. And how, actually, I, I won't jump ahead yet. So let, let's talk about some like mistakes that you've made or mistakes that you made along the way. I 
you know, you mentioned hiring people and you didn't have management experience and perhaps not interviewing. So you can't really, like, no one can blame you for that mistake. Like you have to go through that experience and you didn't have like a mentor showing you on the job. So one benefit, yeah. I while I complained about my job, I learned how to like hire and build teams because I had people with like 15 years experience teaching me how to do it. So if I, when I had to do it, it was, it was pretty easy. Um, so yeah. what, what are some mistakes? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's tough. That's exactly my realization too. I'm like, if I was managing a team when I was still working in my data analyst job, I was like, yeah, you have so many managers around you. You can call, oh, this situation came up. Like, you know, you have, you know, so many people you could phone a friend for. Whereas in this business, I didn't really have that. <laughs> I'm like going off of like, you know, my gut feel of Googling things, sometimes like posting in forums, like, is this normal? Like, should I, how do I respond to this situation? <laughs> like, <laughs> it was really like fending for myself. Um, I think I, I, it, it was like a mix of mistakes in terms of like, initially, um, initially I was a little too soft. And so I had people that just like, just work not getting done to the level it needs to be done and taking five times the amount of time I would expect it to take kind of stuff. Um, and then being billed for that and not being fully satisfied, but like feeling like, yeah, we can make it work. Whereas like when I found my right people, it's like, I knew like, almost right away at like, this is my team. These are a players. It's like, and I, I had full trust in them from the beginning. If, if, if I properly set out guidelines in terms of like what we need timelines, what's expected, like that is super, super important. Um, I, I can tell very quickly if someone's a good fit or not. So I made like an interview process where it was like a, um, I'd do a questionnaire. I'd have, I'd give them, I'd test them a little bit. I'd have them like review things on our website and ask, more complicated questions that we get that all the information is out there just to see, are people going to do the research? Are they going to notice these little details? Um, I, I definitely test them like that kind of judge kind of like how, what their tone is like for like a customer service type of role. And I, I, I just kind of, you know, put them through tests in the interview process. And that really, really made a difference. Cause I could see who was serious or not. And also like really focusing in the very beginning, if I had, somebody that wasn't meeting the marks in those first couple of weeks is like, don't even try to move forward. Just like, you know, part ways. If it's not going to be like an A fit, you have to part ways. And so you're, you know, we're a small business. We can't, we don't have room for B players. We don't have room for people that aren't pulling their weight or that are going to require me to like be overly overseeing their work and a high type of way. It was really being, I don't want to say being like a little bit cutthroat, but I, I kind of had to be because I wasted time with people that were like most of the way there, but not quite the perfect fit. And it feels bad, right? Because like you're like disappointing them, right? But at the same time, you don't have time to mess around. And there's so many other people that you could hire. That's the thing. Like it's so easy to hire someone else. I mean, you still have to go through the screening and interview and yeah. make sure you you're doing due diligence, but there's just way too many people that are probably more qualified and you just have to find them. Yeah. So, and, and then also learning just like once I had really good people, it's like taking really good care of them. And it's like, once I find these people, like how do I make sure that they feel like, they're valued and they're getting that feedback on a regular basis, sending them, you know, tracking birthdays, tracking important events in their life. And like being, having that relationship really made a difference also in terms of getting people to stick around. Any other mistakes or things you would do different that you could think of? 
Not necessarily from like the management type of perspective. Uh, Yeah, I I, I can't think of something not specific right now. That's good. That's good then. (laughs) So I'll go, I'll go a little bit deeper and just see. You said you got a little overwhelmed during the COVID timeframe and you sold, you seem happy now you're working with Quiet Light. Is there anything that you think you could have done? Not that you want to do it, but is there anything you could have done to prevent the overwhelm and still have the business now? Yeah, I think it would have been hiring sooner because I, I, I went through so much turnaround that that was I waited a little bit too late, but it also was a little bit unpredictable. So I can't totally fault myself for that, but I probably had capacity to have hired somebody earlier than I did looking back. So hiring sooner, getting that outsourced sooner is that would have lowered my workload going into it to give me capacity to flex. Should something unexpected come up that requires a ton of my time again, like COVID did. A lot of that stuff was really just like kind of unprecedented in terms of like warehouses were shut down in California. Like that's why part of the reason we were shipping out of our house when we hadn't been doing that before. Like we had, a, I had a container of basically swing set frames shipped to my house and I was shipping these out of my garage, like these 60 pound boxes. I'm packing them myself and the UPS guy is coming every day and picking them up. Our whole garage was like just pallets of product because you know, nobody could ship out of the warehouses in California. If it wasn't like an essential, I don't remember what they, what the wording was. If it's not like essential goods for COVID, like those warehouses were like shut down. So yeah, if I had things outsourced a little bit earlier, I would have had a little bit more flex time and it wouldn't have been quite the workload that I had experienced at that time, just doing everything. All right. So let's, hit a couple of tactical things as much as we can. I went on a long yeah. tangent and thanks for coming along on that. So for the, like the traffic and sales and stuff like that, where were you getting traffic? Was it mostly ad based or social or what? Yeah, it was a mix. It was a, it was pretty diversified in terms of our traffic channels. Um, Early on, I got the most traction off Google Shopping. And I still think that's a great place to shop or to start selling, depending kind of what your product is. But um, the buyer intent is really high. They're really low in the funnel. They're looking on Google Shopping like they're ready to buy. They're ready to shop, kind of similar to shoppers on Amazon. So I found a lot of traction there. There was nobody selling aerial yoga equipment on Google Shopping when I started those ads. So we kind of like were first movers there and crushed it. So that was always a really nice channel for us. Of course, I we did Facebook ads. Um, that was maybe like 30% of our revenue. We did um, a little bit of sales on Amazon, not a ton. Like We barely scratched the surface of what might have been possible with Amazon. And then we had some organic sales as well from building content. So that was one of my strategy with the business was to be like value-driven. Um, that's a lot of kind of the principles that dropshipping models we're teaching at the time is how do you sell products that you're adding value beyond just what you're selling? So is there like digital guides you could put with it, tutorials, um, expertise? And I, I still think that's a viable strategy today is like, what can you add value to that makes makes customers become fans of your brand and really trust you? So we did a lot of um, content. We did um, an online subscription service, classes that people could subscribe to to use the equipment with. We sold tutorials, we sold teacher training courses, 
um, becoming kind of like a leader in the space was one of my strategies. And like, how do we like add value? People trust us and then, and therefore also trust our equipment, want to buy from us and become brand loyal. Got it. And you mentioned you were a little bit ahead of the curve. Were you like pretty far ahead of the curve? Cause like you were, or the company was an industry leader by the time you sold, right? Yes. Yes. I would say so because it's a pretty niche space. There were other companies selling aerial yoga equipment when I started, but there was no company that was specialized solely in aerial yoga. Actually, when I started it, we were called aerial yoga gear, just aerial yoga gear.com was the company. And I, I, I rebranded it um, midway through to uplift active to be able to sell things beyond just aerial yoga. Okay. And let's, let's talk a little about the niche selection. So like I said, it sounds like you were part of that, but like, what advice can you give people? And you, you know, you could weave your story into this as well. Yeah. I love talking about niche selection because I have a very different perspective now being as an advisor and helping people sell businesses and that I see what's popular and what's not popular. And this is so, so important. Like your niche makes a huge difference in terms of what you might be able to sell your business for in the future. So starting off right and being aware of this is like very important. So I chose aerial yoga because of um, personal interest in it, but also um, it also aligned with uh, what I saw as a, a big opportunity because um, it's a higher ticket item. So it's like, you know, this is higher end equipment. People are willing to pay a premium for really good quality equipment like this. It's very important that, you know, it's been tested, it's, it's safe and reputable and it can charge a premium price for that. So I saw that as an opportunity and I'm a big fan of, you know, higher ticket items still to this day. But in terms of niche selection, if I was starting another brand today, I would definitely consider average order value. Something that's small is going to be really hard to scale just because like your fixed cost, cost of advertising is going to be high. Like you really like products under $30, I think would be hard to scale with. I probably want to stick with higher end items. And then items that you can charge a premium for. So like avoiding commodity type niches things that you can build a community around hobbies are always like great niches because it's really easy to find your customers. Like there's Facebook groups where you can find customers. It's really easy to get people to be really passionate about what you're selling and passionate about your brand. If it's something that's like a hobby for people. And then anything that is, has the ability to um, have some kind of like repeat purchase component to it is always it's always great. Everybody loves recurring revenue in terms of a, a business value that really, really adds to what you could sell for eventually. And then um, there are some other things to think about avoiding trending niches. So things like apparel and jewelry businesses are hard to sell because they're seen as trendy. They're seen as, you know, more work to operate because you're constantly having to launch new products. Your product life cycle is shorter. Um, you have to deal with higher amounts of inventory when you have sizing. That's something I would avoid. So you're looking for evergreen niches with products that you can really build a brand around and a community around. Great advice. Did you find, so you had a personal interest in, in your niche. Do you think that's good or bad? Cause some people like, turn it into a negative. Um, you know, an example, people like photography, they become a photographer and then they hate their hobby. Yeah, I, I generally think it's a good thing. I certainly have heard of that happening too. But I, myself, I would have a hard time building a brand and working 
like really putting in the work to get it to where it needs to be to, to, to for me to be happy with it. If it's something that I like really just don't care about at all, like I have to be able to understand it and also like relate to your customers and, and understand their perspective about what you're selling as well to um, you're just going to be more successful. I think if you are able to understand that connection. So let's shift a little bit more into like the state of the industry. So there's a, there's a couple things and actually I, I asked you for some notes and here's one of them state of the market for e-com and content businesses looking to exit. So yeah. over the past couple of years, there's a, it's, I'm in the content uh, site space more so, but there's a wide range of listeners and viewers out there, but you know, advertising has been lower. There have been a handful of Google updates that have really shaken everything up. And I know that some of the multiples have gone down specifically for content businesses. And I think it, it probably varies for other stuff. But what is, what is the state of the market out there these days? Yeah, yeah, things have definitely shifted a lot over the last couple of years. And it's going to depend on what your business is. We can talk a little bit about e-com, then I'll talk a little bit about content. So e-com, we had the aggregators come onto the scene, you know, 2020, 2021 was really the peak where we had these aggregators with private equity money, um, flush with cash, buying up businesses, mostly Amazon heavy businesses in droves for really high multiples. The market has since kind of stabilized. Most of those aggregators are not purchasing anymore. That being said, there is definitely still a big buyer pool for online businesses that are profitable and growing. Um, Quiet Light's been around for 15 years now. We, we, we were selling Amazon FBA businesses before uh, the aggregators came on the market. We're still selling them now. We still have buyers. Um, it's a lot of smaller groups of buyers, um, you know, mom and pop buyers or entrepreneurs that manage portfolios of brands. They're not necessarily like, you know, a funded aggregator per se, but they have expertise growing and scaling brands. Um, they, they are buying. And you'll also have financial buyers, people that um, come from, you know, maybe a corporate background wanting to start their own thing, but not wanting to start from scratch. Buying a business can make that transition easier. So you see those buyers across uh, e-commerce and content. So multiples right now in e-commerce, it depends on kind of what your breakdown of sales looks like. I think the buyer, the buyer demand has kind of restabilized to way, the way it was looking pre-COVID, whereas businesses that are more diversified in their sales channels are selling for higher multiples than purely FBA businesses. So if your business is mostly Amazon FBA, those multiples have fallen a little bit below where businesses that are more diversified are selling. So Amazon FBA businesses are selling two and a half, three and a half X SDE on average. And when I say SDE, that is your seller's discretionary earnings. So it's your net income, plus you get to add back owner benefits or any one-time expenses. So it's like how much money you're financially making as an owner operator of your business. So FBA is two and a half, three and a half times that. Diversified e-commerce businesses can be higher. It can be two and a half to four times that on average. And we're talking about, you know, sale prices under 5 million. Content side of things um, has really, really been disrupted over the last year with AI, with the last few Google updates, helpful content, core update, like that has really, really shaken, shaken the scene, as I'm sure that you've heard and seen yourself. That I'd say it seemed that demand for content was really slow over the past kind of summer, but it started to pick up a little bit again in recent months as for sites that have been able to weather the updates successfully with, you know, minimal, you know, impact or maybe, you know, have seen a lift as a result of them. 
But I'd say buyers are still a little bit shy about content, you know, that we're still hearing that sentiment, you know, AI is still relatively new. We don't know kind of like the full impact of how this is going to impact the space, how this is going to impact SERPs in the future. Like there's a lot of unknowns there. So the multiples and content can be very high still if you have, you know, a really resilient site that has diversified income, good growth trends. We're seeing still strong multiples. It could be anywhere, you know, three, five X, a really high side. Um, but Sites that have been hit by those updates are selling for significantly less and very, there's not a lot of buyers that are wanting to take on those turnarounds right now. So you could be one, two X, maybe even under a one X if the site has really taken a nosedive and depending kind of the whole picture where the revenue is coming from and et cetera. Interesting. Yeah, it sure would be scary to buy one of these sites, especially, I mean, I imagine that the people that would buy a content site probably have experience in it. But if not, I, I would I would feel so bad for them not knowing what they're walking into and the risk and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, There's plenty of sources out there for them to get that information, of course, if they do some research. Um, but yeah, still crazy. I know some people don't do their research. So yeah, things are changing so quickly in this space. So if you're, I, regardless if it's content or e-commerce, if you're looking at doing a turnaround, I you, you want to make sure you have expertise in, in that business model, whatever it is. It's not not for the faint of heart, for sure. If you're new to a space, stick and you're wanting to acquire, stick to something that's growing, has good foundations and has a buyer, has a seller that's um, willing and able to train you through that process. Okay. So another note that you sent over is being prepared to sell when you will get the most value and give you the most flexibility. And one thing that I guess I don't say it like on the podcast too often, but if I'm coaching someone or if I have like a private conversation, I'll tell them, Hey, it seems crazy, but you should maybe consider selling your site or your asset or whatever. And it's crazy because it's on the uptick. It's growing. Yeah. And the thing is, I've got burned like this twice. I know a couple of my friends have as well. But basically, you should sell something when everyone thinks you're absolutely fucking nuts for trying to sell it. And it looks like a bad decision. Because as soon as it looks like you should sell it and you're tired of it or the the sales have plateaued or something, then it's not as attractive and you can't get the good multiple. So can I hope I'm on the right track. But can you expand yeah. on your point here? Yeah, definitely. It's really, if you have the time and ability to do so, which you should, if you're, if you're running a business, you want to be able to reverse engineer your exit and know what, is there a goal figure in mind where you're like, yes, if I hit this number, if I can sell my business for this number, it makes sense. Let's sell. You should know what that number is for you so that you can keep tabs on it because it's really hard. It's kind of like you're playing like a slot machine at times where you're like, wow, this business is growing. It's going great. Like everything's chill. I'm working so few hours that might be the right time for you to sell. And it's really hard to kind of like pull the stops and sell. But if you're at your financial number, if you wait too long and ties change, you know, you get complacent, you neglect the business, it starts declining, there's algorithm update, whatever, external force or something that you're doing yourself changes the tide. Suddenly you can be on a much longer timeline to get back to that number that you would have been happy had you just sold when you when things were up. So it's like, do that math of like knowing kind of what are what are the multiples for your business model? Like you can reach out to me. I'd be happy to give you kind of like a current state if you wanted to sell today. This is what it would look like. 
that way you can kind of make your plan from there. Like, oh, you know, I'm close. I need to like really be kind of watching my numbers and thinking about that. Or I'm a little further away. Let's make, you know, some now's maybe the time to make some, you know, bigger investments, maybe some riskier investments and kind of see how those pan out in the future. But it's very important that you're kind of keeping tabs on that because it, it makes me really sad, especially I see people like getting close to retirement and like, you know, things are going well. It's like, oh, you know, a year more, a little bit more. And then a year comes by. Okay. Now the business has started to decline. It's actually worth less. If you had sold a year ago, you would have been retired an extra year and you would have walked away with more money, but now it's worth less and you've worked another year and it's, you know, we can still, there are still buyers for, you know, this, this situation, but we kind of missed that ideal mark had we been thinking a little bit uh, more strategically and holistically about like what your goal is and what you're really trying to achieve there. And a couple of things that you mentioned before from your specific business, you needed to remove yourself from it. So you were the CEO or founder and have all yeah. the operations taken care of. And that probably solves most of the problems for most people when thinking about selling their business, right? Yeah, it's there's a few things. It's not simply... The transferability risk is one aspect of it. If you are heavily involved, that's an aspect. But there are other risks as well that can have a really big impact of what you can sell your business for. And knowing that in advance can allow you to make some tweaks and adjust things. Like maybe maybe you have a dependency. If you have an e-commerce business, you have a dependency on like one, you have this huge wholesale client that's making up, you know, 30, 40% of your sales. Like how, how solid is that? Buyers are going to see that as risky. And you may sell for a lower multiple, but if you're able to grow some new wholesale accounts, you know, grow some other sales channels to kind of balance that risk, you're going to be worth more when it comes time to sell. Same thing like on the content side, if all of your income is, you know, display ads or like, you know, one specific revenue source, that's going to be riskier. So diversifying things in advance, that's, that's work that you need to do ahead of time that's going to pay off when it comes to sell. Is there anything else that sellers need to know about the process to help them out when they're thinking of selling? Yeah, I'd say um, if, if you have the chance to plan ahead, that's well worth your while. So, I mean, even if you're years ahead of potentially selling, it's worth getting evaluations. You can contact me, um, be happy to give you kind of like state of the market for what your business is and what it's worth and um, make any changes that need to be made. I'd say the most common thing is really getting books cleaned up especially on inventory-based businesses, because moving those books from cash to accrual can show a really big difference in what that profitability looks like, depending on like what how you've been managing your inventory, how much you have at a given time. So doing that in advance is really important. It's going to be need to be done before you list for sale. So if you wait until you're actually ready to sell to do kind of some of this cleanup work, it's just going to push your timeline out further. So the average timeline to sell right now is about three to four months from start to finish from, hey, I, I want to sell the business, make that decision, sign up with Quiet Light to actually closing. It's about three to four months. So you can kind of think about that as you're planning ahead um, and definitely reach out in, in advance of that just in case there's any little things that you need to be doing to kind of tweak um, the business prior to actually listing it to give yourself some leeway. Okay. And is there any anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't before we let everyone know where they could find you? I think that really sums it up. I'd say it's just definitely reverse engineering your exit is the best way that you can get the biggest return. Um, there's some stats like 60% of all the income you ever will earn from your business comes on the day that you exit. So making a plan for that ahead of time is going to set you up 
in the best way that's going to make it go as smooth as possible, get you the best price and um, just the least headaches through that process. And then where can people find you? Yeah, um, you can email me, Elaine at quietlight.com. Be happy to set up a call or answer any questions anyone has. Okay, cool. And what kind of like advice would you like? What what kind of people should be contacting yeah. you? What's the right person so you don't have like just <laughs> random yeah. meetings with people that you can't help? Yeah, I'd say. I mean, our to list with Quietlight. I'd say you want to be making around fifty k of profit per year or on a trajectory towards towards that. So if you're a little smaller than that, but you're not ready to sell yet, you're more future planning, I'm happy to have a conversation and kind of like walk you through kind of what you might expect and some things that can help get you there. Awesome. Cool. We'll put the email address in the show notes so people can find it. And thanks a lot, Elaine. It's been a lot of fun catching up with you. Thanks, Doug. Likewise.